one of the goals of this end time series has to try and take what's been historically a very confusing um, uh, with uh, many voices, uh, many good voices, Christian voices saying different things. And our goal was to try and make it as simple as possible where if someone, you were interacting with someone, a Christian or a non-Christian, wondering about how it all ends, what it looks like, what the Lord has revealed in Scripture about how it ends, wanted you to be able to, to take a napkin and draw it out. This is about as simple as I can get it and understand it. We provided napkins last week, but we're not going to be providing further napkins. So it's bring your own napkin now each Sunday. But, but really, there's a backside of the napkin that would be good for you to be able to think about. If you've not seen that or heard that message, go back and hear it. It's about this idea of living between in the shadow of the cross and in hope and anticipation of his return, his second coming. That's the back side of the, the napkin. The front side of the napkin is this. We, we've talked about the church age and the signs, the, the beginning pains, the Braxton Hicks, as it were, uh, of the things in the world happening, that we enter into a time of tribulation, saw that in 2 Thessalonians where, where Paul gives very specific um, uh, uh, information about that we would enter into a time of rebellion, a time of suffering, where a, a man, a political, a religious leader would be revealed and he would come. And then Paul talked a lot of, in First. Thessalonians about the return of Christ when we hear the angel's voice, the loud command, the trumpet, and Christ, it's revealed to all, he will return with those that have gone before us that are in his presence now. They will be gathered up, and then we will be gathered up. Those who are still alive in that moment, gathered, caught up, rapil, right? Caught up with him. We haven't talked as much about what happens after that point. In fact, you could say that's where it gets somewhat controversial, in terms of what happens, but in that middle part of our napkin, that, that second coming, some believe that there's a secret where we're caught up into the heaven. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. In fact, what I believe is on the napkin that there begins a millennial, millennium reign a thousand years. Millennium is a Latin word that simply means a thousand. And we find that in Revelation 20. There's six verses in Revelation 20 that talk about the thousand year reign of Christ. That would be a physical reign where he comes in Jerusalem and leads and reigns with us. I'll just read uh, verse 6 from Revelation 20. It says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. That's the second coming of Christ. The second death has no power over them. He's talking about you and I. But they will be priests of God and of Christ 
and will reign with him for a thousand years. Pretty incredible verse, isn't there? I want to share that when I graduated from seminary 20 years ago, I was 30 years old, and I did not believe that scenario. In fact, I had a couple of issues with a physical, literal millennial, millennium reign before us. And I just wanted to share some of those. I, I had a theological issue as well as a practical issue. My, my theological issue was it seemed very much like the millennium reign was a really big add-on at the very end of Scripture. Like many of you have read Scripture from beginning to end, right? And so if you're reading, there seems to be, where's the anticipation? Where's the, the foreshadowing? It, this isn't just like a, you know, if you're ordering a cheeseburger and say, could you, oh, could you add pickles on that? This seems like, no, 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 instead I'll take two cheeseburgers, right? This add-on is huge. It's a thousand years. How come Peter or Paul or Jesus, or, or maybe even in the Old Testament prophets, how come they didn't tell us a little bit about this really big add-on at the end? Yes? And then my second issue was more practical, was I always try and approach end times with, does it make a difference to me today? How I'm living my life today, and this is in part why, I became a pan-millennialist, as I've shared. Pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. It'll all pan out in the end. Pan-millennial, we'll, we'll just do that. I want to say that, that I have changed my mind, both theologically and practically. Yes, I have. I've changed my mind just over the, the years. It's, it's been 20 years, right? Now, when I'm 70, maybe I'll change my mind again. I don't know, but, but I, I, I've changed my mind in terms of how I understand end times. But as importantly, I've changed my mind in terms of the practicality of life of the significance of how it makes me live today. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the theological shift and want to invite you to at least entertain this idea and think about this and pray through this, but then especially talk about the practical application of the millennium in his thousand-year reign. And I'll give you a little hint of what that application is. It has to do with leadership and stewardship. Leadership and stewardship. Would you begin to think about your own areas of leadership and stewardship? What God has placed you, whether your own life, your relationships, your family, your career, your work, those areas that he's asked if it's helpful to think of stewarding the resources, the blessing that we just gave thanks for? What are those areas that he's entrusted 
to you? Do you realize he cares about those areas in your life? One verse that's always been very intriguing is 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying, i.e., remember this. Remember this. Let's read the, the first part of it. He says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. Now, the beginning and the end, I feel like I've understood for many years in my life and have sought to live. If, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And then the end, if we disown him, he will disown us. Talking about judgment, I've tried to live that. It's the middle part. That's taken me a long time to wrap my head around. That if we endure, we will reign with him. What does that mean? That we will reign with him. Part of the way the, the Lord ha has really changed my mind has been through some of the inspired Divinely inspired words of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to read two sections of scripture with you both from 1 Corinthians. Would you turn with me there? And we're going to start at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. In the context, it's a, it's a very long discussion, as Paul often does. And, and he is debating you could say theologically somewhat. There was a, an erroneous teaching in the church of Corinth that they had heard, as many other places we saw in Thessalonians and so forth, is, is that the, the resur there is no resurrection. And Paul takes a very long time. You can read it perhaps later today or this week. And he essentially is saying the resurrection is part and parcel to the Christian faith. You can't have one without the other. You, you have to toss so much out that it's, it's crucial. And we'll pick up the discussion. That's the context. Look at verse 17, he says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, yeah, don't even give me this. There is no resurrection. It's crucial. The, the, the orthodox confession of the Christian church is Jesus died on the cross and was raised to eternal life. And his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. Moving on, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's, it's an analogy from the Old Testament harvest time, a giving over of the first fruits of the new harvest to the Lord. Jesus is the first fruits, and probably those who died in that 8030 or that first generation of Christians. 
Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. He quotes Psalm 8, 6. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him so that God may be all in all. When he says Christ is being made sub- subject, he's talking about the administration of the kingdom. There is an equality within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But that subjugation is, is about a, an administration and a purpose within the kingdom of God. Okay, so a lot there, of course, uh, just a little bit that Paul shares here. In just a few verses, I want you to notice how Paul goes from paradise lost to paradise regained. Did you see that? Yeah, the, the, the beauty and the depth of that. He's saying, he goes back to Genesis and he says, Adam is our father to the human race. That, that through Adam's rebellion and sin, we all, he is, uh, he is the representative, not just symbolically, but, but most importantly, our standing before God. And when he fell because of our sin, we connect with his fall in the human race by our own sin. His sin, our sin connects, and we are then, as a human race, Bound to death. Sin and death. Boy, it's so good that the story does not end there, right? And just as Adam is the representation of us, so Christ represents us, not just symbolically, but especially in our standing with God for not the entire human race, but those who by faith are in Christ, so we are made alive. One binds us to death, but in Christ we experience freedom and wholeness and newness of life. Amen? Amen. He tells this beautiful story. But then what's so fascinating, well, the whole thing is fascinating to me, but where he goes from there is so very interesting. Look at verse 20. Three with me. And he says in verse 23, but each in turn. He's suggesting a progression of salvation, I believe, a, a progression of redemption. 
You see, he says in verse 23, he says, first in Christ, first fruits and resurrection. He's talking about in that moment, Easter. That Jesus right now is not in simply a soul or spirit form. He is resurrected, right? Think of the, the 40 days after Easter that, that he appeared to his disciples and they could touch him. He, he could eat things like fish. He's in that resurrected form at the right hand of God. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Are you with me? Okay, good. It feels like you're with me. You're lying to me or you really are, all right? Second, he says, then, look at that little word, then, in verse 23, all right? Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. What is he talking about there? He's talking about us and he's talking about the second coming and that we were caught up with him. All right, second coming. But there's another then, verse 24. Look at verse 24 again. Then, moving along in the progression of redemption and salvation, it says, then the end will come. But listen to how the end comes. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. What many have seen, this is, I want to acknowledge, this is not a slam dunk perspective theologically, but this has profoundly influenced my change of mind. That many throughout history, um, especially the likes of like Justin Martyr, first century, second century, um, have seen that this progression fits into the thousand year reign, the millennium that is talked about in Revelation 20. That, that this, Paul is at least intimating a time period when Christ is ruling on the earth. And that there is still foes, still the possibility of rebellion until the end when he hands the kingdom over. Go back to our napkin, Ariel. That that I used to believe the millennium was part of the church age and it was spiritual. But I believe Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 15 is pushing us, at least intimating, at least getting us to think and ponder about a time when Christ comes and we meet him in the air and then we return to earth and he rules and reigns in Jerusalem and then you and I rule with him. Well, that's kind of significant, don't you think? Just real quickly, there turns out there seems to be other passages 
that intimate at least or imply that could only seem to be able to be lived out in the millennium. If, if you look at some of the passages, see if you can follow me with this, the Isaiah 65 passage. This Isaiah 65 talks about a different time. There, there is no more premature death, and yet there's still the presence of sin and death reads, no more shall there be an infant that lives but a few days. It's a different day. Or, or an old man who does not fill out his days. It's a different day. For the child shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. In other words, what I'm trying to point out here is that that passage, looking at the future promise of our life doesn't quite fit in the broken age that we live today. Do you understand? There's death and sin. And yet it doesn't quite fit Revelation 21 when heaven comes to earth and there's no more tears and no more pain, no more sin. It seems to imply there is a period when neither are true. Are you with me? Making sense? One more, Isaiah 11, another. You can also see this. I, I put a few other scriptures if, for those who want to keep score at home and read at home. That Isaiah 11 is talking about nature, that nature is a different reality, that there is a peace, and yet at the same time, God is at work gathering from other nations and subduing other nations, Isaiah 11, 6 and 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. Very rare to see in our present age today. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Beautiful picture, yes? And yet verse 11, just a few verses later, says, in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt. It goes on to name other nations that are in existence in this time period again. This idea that we're not in the broken age that we live in today, but also not fully when heaven comes to earth. Many have seen those passages of scripture where Christ, when he returns a second time, he defeats the enemy, the, the man of lawlessness. He defeats the beast. He actually bound, binds Satan with a chain and into the abyss so he can't deceive men and women anymore. And yet there still seems the potential that men and women, by their own volition, can choose not to follow the Christ who's ruling and reigning physically resurrected on the earth with us. Yes? Does that make sense? All right, good. It feels like you're with me. Now, practical application. It's kind of a challenge one, right? So this has caused me to go, <laughs> what does that look like 
If there's still the potential, there's still other nations, Christ is back, and I'm not playing a harp on a cloud. I'm not just singing in the choir, as fun as that would be. But he's saying, no, I'm going to be administering the kingdom in it in some ways different and in some ways the same. And I'm not going to do it by myself. I'm looking for the women and men who've administered my kingdom in this broken age, who will administer it in the age to come. And that has put me, that, that has charged. I, some of you know that I, I have some issues with leadership and the talk. I, I feel like the, 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 the church has made an idol out of leadership. I feel like we have some incredibly bad examples, unchristlike examples of leadership that so much of the church takes its leadership, what we call healthy leadership, from, from other secular areas and not scripture. And yet, that he's looking for people to be leaders in his kingdom now and in the millennium reign. That brings us to our second passage of scripture. If, you would, if you're reading along in your, your Bible, would you flip back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians 6. And this is a slightly different context. It's not a theological context. He's not arguing about the resurrection. What he's doing is it's a very practical con, uh, um, context. Paul is upset for many things that the Corinthian Christians are doing, but this one in particular, he's upset that they are they're arguing over these little pieces of, uh, uh, the, of uh, they're, they're bringing one another to court. And they're having uh, these trivial disputes and they're arguing and they're not solving it uh, together in the wisdom of Christ, but they're dragging one another to court and they're having a non-believing judge with them. So this is the context. So chapter 6 verse 1 says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? I, I don't think I really knew that for a long time. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that you will judge angels? I know that's a rhetorical question, but my answer has been no. <laughs> I, well, no one ever taught me that. What, what are you talking about, Paul? It's obviously related to previous teaching to the Corinthians. How much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Those who are sinning. 
I say this to shame you. If it is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself... Cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Okay, I want to say this real, real briefly. One of my good friends, there was an accusation in the youth ministry of, of sexual inappropriateness, and he decided to hand, try and handle it within the church, and he said that's been the biggest mistake of his ministry that there is such a thing as uh, court-mandated reporters, and there are times absolutely when we need to go in our context today to civil authorities, okay? So don't miss that or, or take that, okay? But what the point that he is making is he's saying, don't you realize your destiny? Don't you realize your calling? Don't you realize that you will judge the world? That you will judge even angels? In light of that, can't you discern and judge and lead in these trivial matters in the earth today? Don't you realize that God is trying to prepare you for this amazing and incredible calling that he has on your life? For a long time, I was saying, no, Paul, I didn't know that. What what does that mean? How do I understand that? What does that look like that we will judge the world and, and, and minister justice and mercy. What does that mean? That's mind-blowing that I would judge angels. What? So I don't know if anyone really has the details of that. But just the concept is what is, is crucial to our understanding. Hope you see where I'm going now, that the judgments that we make, how we lead today, how we steward today in one sense is preparation. It's a dress rehearsal, as it were, in preparation for the leadership and the stewardship responsibilities that he will give us into the future. And when I think about a millennial, millennium reign of a thousand years, that Christ on the throne and that he is using us to administer that justice and that mercy, that I want to lead well now. Every aspect of my life and, and, and who I am now, sometimes when I speak, I've spoken about leadership in the past, I inevitably get someone who comes up and says, I'm just not a leader, pastor. And I want to suggest, hope you hear from me, I believe I'm just not a leader is a statement that we've been conditioned, some of us, because of our culture, our family, our friends, 
and sometimes our church. And I don't believe that's a biblical statement. I believe to be human is to have a calling on our lives to lead in the name of Christ in the kingdom of God. So you don't get to go, oh, I'm not a leader. I guess this message doesn't apply to me. Okay? Right? When he created Adam and Eve, he gave them he gave them authority. He said, uh, we all remember the be fruitful part, right? Right? But he goes on from that. What does he say? I, <laughs> yes. We all remember and multiply. Yes. Thank you, Jedediah. Yes. Okay. After the multi, get off the multiplying idea. All right. After the multiplying, what does he say? This really intriguing word, he says, I, I give you dominion. Yes, I, I, I give you that there's a, the, the, you, I'm calling you. I didn't just create you to be on the sidelines. I've created you to lead, to subdue, to have dominion, to reign. I'm giving you all these things, not to simply enjoy for yourself but to join me, to join the Holy Spirit in the administration of the kingdom. Women and men, black and white, poor and rich, I'm, I'm giving you authority and a calling and a destiny to lead. And by the way, in this life is a preparation for what has come because I've got even bigger plans. And I'm looking for those who are faithful. I'm looking for those who are leading in the name of Christ. I'm looking for those who are leading with integrity and honesty and sacrificially with, with wisdom and stewardship. I'm looking for those. The question is, will you be one of those who's faithful in leadership? Briefly, just touching on this. I want to encourage you again to some of those who feel like you're not a leader. Would you begin with your own life? With your own heart and with your own soul. With your own body even. Some of you might recall this First Thessalonians 4 passage where he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control your own body. Would you agree with me? That's a form of stewardship and leadership. He's saying part of the Christian faith is you begin with yourself, your person. You lead your person in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like pagans who do not know God. I was thinking how parenting teenagers is a beautiful example of what God is doing with us today. Yes, that, that good Christian parenting is you're raising and you are leading the lives of your children, especially as infants, right? You're providing all of that. As they grow older, the healthy Christian parenting is that we're pulling back our leadership of their lives. 
and empowering them to lead. The Christian part comes in is then we plead to God that they would not make huge mistakes, right? There's that balance back and forth that you, yes, sweetie, if, if you don't go to class, then you won't have school anymore. You'll fail. That, that, that's a reality. Yes, if you only eat junk food, eventually you're going to feel like junk. It's not rocket science, right? If you don't show up for work, you're not going to have work, right? Some of these foundational leading things that you pull back and forth, I think that's a picture of God. <laughs> yes, if you look at that same website, you're going to sin. Yes, if you harbor unforgiveness, your heart is going to be filled with poison. Yes, if you uh, treat this person badly at work, chances are what you sow is what you will reap. Yes, if you're dishonest with the financial blessing that I've given you, I will stop giving you financial blessing. You see, this idea and then I just, real briefly, I want you to see the progression here. He's talking to Timothy about leadership of the church. And he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 4, he says, whoever aspires to be an overseer or elder desires a noble task. And then he says, he must manage his own family well. You see what God is doing here. He's calling us to, to begin with the leadership and stewardship of our own lives. And then, by God's grace, to our children, in our relationships, in our workplace. And then, by God's grace, to even leadership in the church. And blessing in the church. And then, ultimately, leading in his kingdom, I believe in the millennium reign. There's the one part that I think Jesus might have intimated in this reign. And I want to leave you with this. this. It's an idea. Most of us remember the, the parable of talents. It's told in a slightly different way in Luke. And it's the, the parable of minas. Um, he's not talking about fish, but that is a, a currency of, of money in the time. One mina would be the equivalent of um, th about three months of wages. And he tells the story, he says, a nobleman goes away. I think Jesus is talking about himself right now. But before he goes away, he gathers 10 people and he gives them 10 minas. And he says, I want you to invest these and use these wisely. 
And then there's some that don't want him to be king and they rebel and some that invest anyways. And so he comes back and there's at least one who does not invest well. And he doesn't make, he just buries it. He just, he doesn't invest it. And he says, take that away. Uh Uh-uh, no, bad. There's one that invests it, at least one, and does well. And listen to what Jesus has, the nobleman, or I believe Jesus, saying. The first one came and said, sir, your minna has earned 10 more. And he says, well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. I know it's a parable, press a parable, it's not a slam dunk. It's so incredible that he would put 10 cities, this idea that there's still ruling and reigning that needs to take place. And he's looking for folks, ordinary folks like you and me that are leading well. Where do I sign up? Yeah. And that has been motivational for me to say, boy, I want to lead well. I want to take what he's given me and do it with integrity and do it in a way that honors Christ. And I don't want to just hover and cling to it and grab for more. In fact, I want to invest. I want to give. I want to empower. In fact, I believe the first principle of good leadership is learning how to be a good follower. I want to be a good follower. And when he brings leadership to me, I want to take that and do it in such a way that honors him. I invite the the worship team forward. Would the prayer team come forward too? And I just ask them to uh, have anointing oil available. And uh, in the Old Testament, when a king or a priest would step into leadership, they'd be anointed with oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit, symbol of their call and their task. And I want to encourage you, if you feel so led, if there's an area that you just want to say, I'm leading in this area. Maybe it's with young children. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in your personal life. If there's an area that you just want to say, Lord, I need your direction. You've given me this leadership, and I want to do it in such a way that honors you. Would you come forward and be anointed by the team, and they'll do a short prayer over you for your leadership. Let's pray. So Lord, your gospel just gets deeper and wider and more incredible. The plans that you have for us as your children is amazing. Lord, we confess that we need you. We cannot do it in our own brokenness and struggle 
and stumbling, and yet you provide your forgiveness, your grace, and your calling in our lives. Lord, would you teach us? We, we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Would we live today in anticipation of those words? Amen.